I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. All right, now, forget all that stuff, Michael. Here we go. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? Dun, 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 dun. Hey, if we, if we have a not clear start, they're not going to know when to start the podcast. We start when I go, ready for this. That's how it works. <laughs> you you forgot what I was like with coffee. Man, it's so yeah, good. Yeah, that's true. I'm on the ball again. Once I started drinking coffee again, it's like my whole world has changed. Except for all those emails in your inbox. Yeah, except for those. It's proof of the existence of God. That's what it says in our coffee talk intro. Oh, that is right. Yep. Well, today uh, we're actually going to be looking into uh, the general instruction because last time we talked about the theology of the Word of God, but today we're getting to the nitty gritty. Yeah. So remember in the in the missal, I mean, most of the hmm, most of the pattern we're following is actually from the middle of the missal called the Order of Mass. And in the order of mass, if you're following along with your missile at home, it's on uh, page 523 in the uh, big altar missile, number 10. Yeah, uh, number 10, order of mass, number 10. And it really it doesn't take up very much room in the missile to 20, 10 to 20. Or you can go to the front of the book to the general instruction of the Roman missile. And that begins at number 55. So I thought we'd, I don't know, just sort of, I want you to picture in your mind's eye, you know, the liturgy of the word taking place at a Sunday mass, keeping in mind that theology that we looked at uh, last time. And, uh, you know, just read the germ then, these rubrics, uh, in light of the theology and see if they, if they don't make more sense now. Okay. So, all right. So I, I don't want to read all this stuff, but let me just, uh, let's just, but we want to know what the church says, right? This is part of the, this is part of Yeah, the, you're not really selling the product very good, Chris. <laughs> I, you should say, I really want to just go word for word, but we just don't have time. There's just so much But there's depth. that phrase right in the middle of it. And it says, in the readings, God speaks to his people, as explained by the homily. Hey, that's it, isn't it? That's it. It's not yeah. a Bible memorizing thing. I have some friends who are Baptists, and they used to go to Bible camp, and they would have they'd have like shootouts with Bible verses, like like mm-hmm. instead of like cap guns, and everything was memorized, memorized, memorized. It's good enough as far as it is, but this says opens the mystery of redemption and salvation. That's what it's about. Well, it is, and I think um, you know, basically in, in this first paragraph, it's describing the liturgy of the word, right? It's we had that little quiz question last time. When does it end with the universal prayer? But the component parts of the liturgy of the word are let's say on a Sunday, first reading, psalm, second reading, gospel acclamation, gospel, homily, creed, and universal prayer. Those are the parts that make up the liturgy of the word. And I think that, um, you know, you know, a couple more things. Dennis, you mentioned the, the, the mystery is opened up. We talked about this word before. I mean, the mystery isn't this whodunit. What is it? What is the Christian mystery? Sacraments, this word equivalent is the revelation of God to the world. The invisible things of God became knowable in the world, the action of Christ and every other thing before and after. See, and that's just it. It's the mystery is meant to be revealed and made knowable. It's not meant to be kept secret from people. So, and that's part of what the liturgy of the word does is, you know, God has had this plan for the creation and redemption of the world and the person of his son 
through all eternity. And what the what Revelation does, as contained, for example, in Scripture and now revealed in the Liturgy of the Word, is it tells people about that. God wants the people to know this mystery, not to have to have them guess about it, about what he's thinking. But that's you know another reason why this is so important. I heard a definition, and it may be from Jean Honey again. I remember I have honeyitis these days, which is the word, if you think about it, is not just this thing you write on paper or speak. It's a, sa- a self-revelation, right? So the son, as the word of the father, is the gift of self to another, right? The father gives full donation of self and becomes realized, put a hyphen in there, made real in the other. But you see the word spoken and the speaker of the word, because it's a revelation of self, are the same. And so we talk about this logos, the big word, the revelation of God's own interior life, exteriorized to the Son. Perfect. Well, we have the Father through the Son exteriorized in a less perfect way, but nonetheless, that becomes realized in us. So the word, liturgy of the word is the the liturgy of God's own self-revelation and making real in us. Amen, brother. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Remember this word that uh, Ratzinger has coined in the spirit of the liturgy about logosized? Is that when, yeah. if you can go about hearing the word of God properly, that word ends up in you and you get logosized, you get turned into the word. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this brings that, brings us into that, um, I don't know, this union with God. But you said that was the, you, you talked about the parallel between the culmination of the liturgy of the word in, in the universal prayer, right? And that you become logicized. But then that parallels the sacrifice on the altar, you know, us becoming sanctified and, you know, be putting ourselves there. And then we are Christified, like in the in the Eucharist. So that parallel stays true, I think. Yeah, I mean, that that's the power of the liturgy of the word is it's meant to transform us. It's not just, you know, kind of a timeout before we get to the to the main event in the liturgy of the Eucharist, uh, however uh, superlative that might be. It has this true transformative power. In fact, even this was one of the little models of the liturgy of the word that we didn't get to last time. Uh, just think about how the word travels back and forth in the liturgy of the word. So in some, t- in some of the documents, like the introduction to the lectionary for Mass, it says the liturgy of the word is kind of a microcosm of salvation history. So you know, imagine how in the Old Testament reading at Mass, God speaks to us. This word comes down from heaven speaking to us. In the psalm, we start to speak to God. We talk back to him, but not in our words, in his words. And then God's going to speak to us again in uh, the gospel, and the church is going to explain that in the homily. And then we're going to turn around and speak to God in the creed and in the universal prayer. So it's this, it's this back and forth. So God doesn't uh, monologue to us in the liturgy of the word. It's a true dialogos. If we can, if we can uh, receive the logos. Again, trying, I'm trying to build on what Dennis had said before, you know, about God pouring himself out into us. Then we talk back to God with his own logos and this great glory and divinization and theosis and joy uh, comes about. You know what this is reminding me of, Chris, from the hmm. high to the low? I was a sophomore in high school. We had a gym teacher, Mrs. Hadland, who was a classic gym teacher lady, short haired, kind of tough talker. Used to beat the boys into shape in the gym. And one day she said to me, hey, kid, you're pretty smart. Why don't you do something around here? 
I hear they want to run, they want someone to run for class president. And I was like, eh, okay. <laughs> and I never thought about it before. But she gave me that word of encouragement. She said something about me and I ran for it and won. And, and that became like a turning point in my life where I thought, yeah, leadership, service of others. I mean, at the time I didn't really recognize it, but I look back at it now. The power of that word. She could have said, hey, you loser, go sit in the corner. But she didn't. She said, I see something good in you. And that was real. That was made real in me. You know, you take it at the high level. And hmm. say God makes Himself real in you. That's uh, that's important stuff. The opposite could what, have been true, right? You can. What was your platform? It. Fifteen extra minutes of lunch. I remember my platform was "Don't <laughs> vote for your friends just because they are your friends." <laughs> and I won. That's kind of been his uh, life's philosophy ever since. Oh my gosh, Tough that's talking. great. Everybody else was like, we're going to make the best school ever, and we're going to have the best whatever. And I'm like, don't vote for your friends just because they're your friends. I'm going to put that on a T-shirt and mail it to you. <laughs> okay. Vote for Pedro. <laughs> Not your friends. Vote for Summer. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so number 55, it's basically this introduction of what the liturgy of the word is trying to do. God talks to you and puts the word in you, and you're able to talk to God in return. And this is a pretty awesome thing, and this is why the liturgy of the word is so... Such as, uh, but you know what it says, by silence, by silence and singing, they make the words their own. Isn't that interesting? Word of, the liturgy of the word is not just talky, talky, talky. It's actually sit with this and think about it for a little bit um, and then sing as well. Well, that, it's interesting. Number 56 is on silence, right? So before they actually get into the details of who says what, when, and which order and stuff like that, they talk about silence. You know, so to your point, uh, the liturgy of the word is to be celebrated in such a way as to foster and favor meditation. And so any kind of haste such as hinders recollection, or I might say resonation is clearly to be avoided. Right. so, I mean, ask yourself this, is the liturgy of the word at my parish conducive to meditation? Does it have periods of silence so that the word can resonate within the hearts of hearers? Yeah. A few years back, I did a sabbatical at uh, the divine, well, the hermitage of the merciful heart of the Father in, in Phoenix and Father Eugene Floria, who's the hermit there. And we used to, to speak the liturgy of the hour sometimes in evening prayer. And he always had 30 seconds of silence after each psalm. It's not very long, but you're like 30 seconds. What did I just say? And you, you just said all these words. You have no idea what you just said. And you're like, oh, yeah, let me see what, what I just said now. The fruit that came from that was amazing to actually ponder the words you just said. Well, you know, in, throughout this uh, this year's series, you know, we're trying to get, I don't know, I suppose pastors ultimately, but, you know, anybody who assists them and people who pray it to actually go back to the book and see what it says about various things. And this last sentence here, number 56 in the germ, says, it may be appropriate to observe such periods of silence, for example, before the liturgy of the word itself begins, after the first reading, after the second reading, and lastly at the conclusion of the homily. And again, I don't know what your experience is. Uh, maybe if you get a little silence after the homily, that's like the only time. But usually it's, and so let us stand and profess our faith. And there's almost no silence. But imagine this, uh, you know, if there were that, you know, like you're suggesting, Dennis, 30 seconds or 15 seconds before the liturgy of the word actually begins, before the first and second reading, and then after the homily. I could have a profound uh, uh, impact. You know what's striking me too, as I look at the altar, altar missile, it says, to indicate the end of the readings, the reader acclaims, and there's actually a little line of music there. Mm -hmm. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God, right? 
Now, I know we've talked about singing the liturgy a million times, but this is probably one of the things that almost never happens outside of the liturgical institute or some, you know, very particularly intentional place, that the word of the Lord, that phrase in the response is a what? Someone speaks and you reply, that makes it a? Dialogue. 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 Right. The word across. And so, remember all, those are the things meant to be sung first, so... The ending of the readings, the word of the Lord for an Old Testament reading, the word of the Lord for a New Testament reading, the word of the Lord for the gospel. I mean the gospel of the Lord. So the three different musical settings elevate and amplify the nature of what's being read there and the love song between us and the Father who wants to reveal himself to us. Man, there's so much in here. Well, there is. I mean, back at number 40, when it's talking about the importance of singing, this is number 40 in the general instruction. It says, uh, preferences to be given that those who are of greater importance, and especially to those which are sung by the priest, deacon, or a reader with the people applying. That is tier one, nothing is more important than that which the people can reply to. And I don't, I think you're right, Dennis. I don't know how many people, how many places uh, do that. So tier one was my nickname in college. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I bet it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Number 57. It talks about the biblical readings. So uh, the readings, uh, in the readings, the table of God's word, right? So that's, uh, we've heard about this before, right? So this is, uh, the table is being set for you to eat. is spread before the faithful and the treasures of the Bible are open to them. That's right out of uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Hence, it's preferable that the arrangement of the biblical readings be maintained for by them, the unity of both testaments uh, and of salvation history is brought out. A couple now of that's things from day to day, right? Not just in the one day. Is that what they're getting at? Well, you I think both. I maintain mean, the current, the the flow for, through the week and the season. Well, right. So, for example, if uh, Saint Cyril and Methodius show up, right, there are readings from the common of saints that could be used for them. But I think those. I think it says somewhere that uh, it, the the the, the presider should only use those sparingly so that the order of the readings between days can be maintained. Right. But also- It's easy I, to forget mm-hmm. that across the five days or six days of week at Daily Mass are often one long reading divided into mm-hmm. little bits. They're yeah. not just individual readings each day. Yeah. But even uh, I think between the readings is important too. I mean, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in the economy of salvation and now in the liturgy is by this um, sort of this gradual manifestation of Christ. So, you know, when John the Baptist shows up and he says, you know, Ecce Agnus Dei, that would make no sense to anybody had they not known their history as was recounted in the scriptures. Well, (laughs) we do something similar at the mass is very often that Old Testament reading contains a number of these foreshadows and whatnot uh, of Christ. And so uh, I think the the mass, there was a Sunday mass, it was last Sunday mass. Uh, The first reading was about uh, blessings and curses from the prophet Jeremiah, right? And then the psalm was something like, blessed are those who hope in the Lord. And then the gospel was about the Beatitudes, blessed are they when they you know, persecute you and whatnot, right? And so the the integrity of the liturgy of the word is meant to be maintained. I think you're right, Dennis, not simply across days, but within a particular celebration uh, as well. 
It's, uh, let's see, not lawful to replace the readings and the responsorial psalm, which contain the word of God with other non-biblical texts. Seems kind of no-brainer there, huh? But I think that was sort of trendy in the hippy-dippy days of the 70s yeah. to bring in. Does that still happen? Reading. I have never seen that, but I heard they would bring in Simon and Garfunkel lyrics or wow. some thing from, you know, Chinese wisdom traditions because that was sort of cool and relevant. But, you know, the footnote on that is to Vichesimus uh, Quintus Anus by John Paul. It's like, cut it out. We may no more do this. Um, 1988, he's like, no more gospel readings of the day. Biblical readings of the day. That's it. You know, I knew you did a Pope Benedict. I didn't know you did a John Paul II. I was just going to say it. John Paul II, he talked like a vampire, but also like a holy man. (laughs) But, you know, to that point about swapping out readings, you know, it sounds silly and who would think of that? But we do the same thing for like the antiphons without losing any sleep over that. You know, we have this great Mm -hmm. proper antiphon that King David wrote, you know, about 3,000 years ago. Yeah, inspired uh, by the then, Holy Spirit. So. Yeah, anyway, but, yeah. You know, we've, we've improved upon that. So. Yeah. Let's not get bitter, Chris. Let's yeah, stay joyful. Okay. Are you pro-fun or antiphon? <laughs> Number 58, Jesse. <clears throat> In the celebration of the Mass with the people, the readings are always read from the... Ambo. Ambo. So where where would they have been read before? At the altar. At the altar, yeah. Because so those no, were the old rubrics from the low Mass when there was nobody there to... Proclaim them to, so you would just keep it there and read it yourself. Now, in the High Mass, there could be an ambo. There were ambos in liturgically observant places before Vatican uh, II. You'd see them, say, at the cathedral in Washington, D.C., or the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, they have little stairs to go up to them. Yeah, and it was kind of uh, cool. And so, but they would do that, or they, the deacon could hold the book and it could be proclaimed um, out off the altar. But if most people went to low mass most of the time, then um, they would have a pulpit, which is for preaching. So if you go to one of these big old Chicago churches, the pulpits are not in the sanctuary. So the priest would leave the sanctuary and then go up the steps of the pulpit to preach. But that was not for the proclamation of the gospel. And now pulpit and bar are all kind of the same. Preaching happens at the same place as the proclamation most of the time. I didn't know that. That's mm-hmm. very fascinating. Huh. I didn't know that either. Or I did, I forgot. But, you know, it's it's another, I think, this Ambo, um, remember, this is another kind of a insight into the theology of the liturgy of the word. You know, w- we talked in a previous podcast about Jesse writing uh, letters, right? And, you know, there's a, you know, we're, we're called to know, love, and serve. And this knowledge component of us, of our Christianity, of our faith, is sort of the epicenter of that is the Ambo. And then the the heart of our love is on the altar. And then the service sort of rings out in that ite misa est go out and and uh, you know serve others. But you know, if to downplay that liturgy of the word is to really sort of weaken the knowledge component which we are called to have, to know, to love, and to serve. We're sort of paralleling that. Eh, this is a little bit different too, but think about Christ who's prophet, priest, and king. And that ambo is kind of stands as his prophetic, this prophetic dimension of Christ, just as the altar stands as the priestly dimension of Christ and the the priest chair is the kingly dimension of Christ. So there is, you know, we, we talked early on about use the chair. There's a reason the church wants the priest to use the chair. There's all sorts of sacramental value. And there is a similarly here for the ambo. Right. And I learned from Father Daniel McCarthy, who's a Benedictine of the Abbey here at 
Benedictine College, St. Benedict's Abbey, but he's in teaching in Rome, that the Ambo is also a holy mountain. That's partly why they'd have two staircases and you'd go up high yeah, because, you know, the gospel – Things, important things were proclaimed from the holy mountain when you're talking to God. And I had never heard that image before, but it was really great. So thanks to Father Daniel on that one. Hmm. Let's go to the next one. Uh, 59, the function of, this is, uh, this is curious here. The fun, what does this mean? The function of proclaiming the readings is by tradition, not presidential, but ministerial. Yeah, that means lectors should do it and not the celebrant if possible. Why did the celebrant end up doing it because they uh, didn't have server they didn't have lectors doing it because it was a private mass rubrics most of the time right but if you go to the high mass you could see the deacon often mm -hmm. proclaiming the gospel yeah I, that's a, that's the the common line and I think it's true but it's probably not as simple as as all of that that the priest just took all the parts to himself but uh, gradually I think when there when there were more priests and there were more private masses than, you know, and there, there weren't other ministers. So the priest would do the antiphons, what a, what a cantor would do. The priest would do the readings, what a lector would do. The priest would do all these parts because there wasn't anybody else uh, there perhaps. And even the books themselves start, apparently the history of liturgical books is, is they were divided up according to minister. So you'd have a book of readings, you'd have a book of chants, you'd have a book of presidential prayers you'd have a book of psalms but sort of paralleling i guess the you know the fact that basically one minister did it he only needed one book and so sort of the the president the presider uh came to assume a lot of that so it says therefore the readings are to be read by a reader and i think we talked about this as we set up for mass i mean ideally this would be an instituted reader Right, that's the lector, you might say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've tried to. I I don't know that the the books make a distinction between lectors and readers. I've always thought there's was maybe well, the old, the slightly old fashioned translation that I have calls it a lector. Does yeah. your translation call it a reader? Yeah, it calls it a reader. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but the instituted reader uh, is does a number of things. He's he's dedicated, devoted to to the Word of God. Uh, it's an instituted ministry. You have to be a certain age. It used to be reserved to men till Pope Francis opened it up to men and women because it had been associated, uh, at least in most recent memory, with um, uh, like a minor order on the way to uh, ordination. But the, with the instituted, if you want to read the job description of an instituted reader or instituted lector from Ministeria Quaedam, which is Paul VI's letter from. 1972, the instituted lector is to direct the singing, to direct the active participation of the people, to provide catechesis, to provide training to non-instituted uh, readers and whatnot. I mean, it's a real substantial, you know, role that he had. And I think it, it spoke to, it sacramentalized this importance of the liturgy of the word. But. Take that, lectors. Are you instituted? <laughs> Are you living up to your responsibilities? Actually, I'm an instituted acolyte, and I don't fulfill any of You should be instituted. So. <laughs> I'm not an institutionalized acolyte. That's <laughs> but, the but the gospel by the deacon or in his absence by another priest, but not the presider. And I think that's what that line means. It's ministerial, not presidential. So anybody but the president, the one presiding, would do that. Right. You could see more, obviously, if someone said, you know, the altar server should not be the, the priest. Well, duh, right? It's a ministerial role. 
And you could take it to this level and you say, okay, there it is, a ministerial role for the reading. Except the gospel, of course, which should be a deacon, right? Or another priest, if there's another priest there and not the principal self. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, I didn't know this till Father Martis uh, pointed this out. So he used to do these, uh, the, the practicum for celebrating mass is that when the, when the deacon or the, the priest gives the greeting, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, a reeling, reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. That's the one time where he doesn't extend his hands, where he says, the Lord be with you. All other times when the presider greets the people, he does this gesture of extending his hands. But when he reads the Gospel, the hands are always held together because he's not presiding. He's administering. And the gesture accompanies this uh, as well. So see, see, now we're trying to make nitpickers out of our audience out there, but you know, see what you're- The height of nitpickery. <laughs> see what happens on Sunday. Dennis, didn't you Nate, date some girl named nitpickery? There was her brother who tried to beat me up. Oh, <laughs> nitpickery. All right. And then it concludes uh, with the uh, acclamation, which as you pointed out earlier, Dennis, there's, there's, acclam there's music for this uh, right in the, uh, right in the order of mass itself. And as the germ says at number 40, these are very important parts to sing. All right, maybe, uh, let's see, let's go to the next one before we, before we wrap this one up. About the reading of the gospel, this is number 60. Uh, the reading of the gospel constitutes the high point of the liturgy of the word. The liturgy itself teaches uh, the great reverence that is to be shown to this reading by setting it off from the other readings with special marks of honor. So, Jesse... Just off the top of your head, if you were to see, what are some of these special marks of honor with a proclamation of the gospel that set it apart and sacramentalize the reality at hand? How is well, the, we talked about yeah. the we talked about the the chant, and so the tones are different when you introduce the gospel than with the reading. So instead oh, of yeah. just descending, the uh, the tones descend and ascend. So they kind of symbolize or sacramentalize the incarnation and the ascension and resurrection. Okay. So the introduction is different. The uh, We stand for the gospel, which okay. we don't stand for the other readings. The, the introduction is different and the conclusion is different. And uh, I'm sure there's it's a lot It's also really more, smelly. <laughs> it can be really smelly. Oh, yeah. incense. Yeah. And then the uh, marking on the gospel as well and kissing the gospel. Kissing the gospel, yeah. The blessing with the gospel. The fact that it has its mm -hmm. own book. I mean, mm -hmm. you could use the lectionary, but this one has its very own book. But, it has uh, its own yeah, minister. But in short, I really can't think of anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, good job. I mean, there's 10 things right there. But again, like so many things in the liturgy is just, you know, if you don't, pay attention to them, then there's just, you know, other weird stuff that we do. But right. um, And the blessing for the deacon or the blessing the priest says for himself, he prays to be cleansed, his heart and his lips, to that they can worthily proclaim the gospel. This isn't just go up and read the book and be done, right? How can I become worthy of the words that are going to come out of my mouth? That's, that's sort of a big deal. In fact, do you know where the that prayer comes from? This too was in um, the first reading for Mass over the last couple of weeks. I think it's uh, that line from the prophet Isaiah who says, uh, woe is me, I'm a man living among impure people with impure heart and unclean lips. How am I supposed to go out and, you know, uh, preach the word of God? So what, what happens? Is that the coal, the burning coal? Or yeah, so the angel the takes coal. these tongs and takes a burning coal and it touches it to his lips. That is basically what's happening. 
at this blessing, when the priest blesses the deacon or when the priest himself bows, he says, cleanse my heart and my lips, almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. Without the pain and the blisters, right? Yes. Spiritual activity. But really, that's what we're sacramentalizing here, the content, the substance, the reality behind that, behind these words and these rites is this purification of heart and lips so that God's word, uh, this substantial word, this transformative word, this word of the Father, this word of the Trinity. I mean, that, you know, you don't just talk like that uh, Mm -hmm. unless you are uh, prepared to do so. And there's a prayer at the end that people don't hear because the priest says it quietly. What's that Through the words of the gospel, may our sins be wiped away. So talk about efficaciousness, right? So this is not the same level of the Eucharist or confession, I would imagine, but nonetheless, something of the truth of God will strengthen you against your uh, falsehood, your false understandings, some kind of cleansing goes on here. I suppose people can ponder the nature of it, but the words of the gospel wipe away sins. Mm-hmm. Kind of an amazing thought. It is. It is. Now, we're in, a, and I mentioned this before, I'm helping to facilitate the, uh, the practicum classes for uh, guys in our diocese who are going to be ordained to the diaconate. They'll be permanent deacons. And so we're in that part of the mass now where we've done the uh, the gospel uh, procession. And so it's it's it really, it never ceases to amaze me. I mean, you see this stuff for years, but now all of a sudden when you're going to be the deacon, I mean, like Jesse, let's say that you're going to be ordained uh, to the diaconate. I mean, how would describe the order of events um, before you pro- 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 proclaim the gospel? I didn't mean to st- stutter there on purpose, but... <laughs> It's really amazing. Right? So you're mm-hmm. going to stand. You're going to help load the thurible. You're going to bow. You're going to say your blessing, Father. And he says that prayer. You make the sign of the cross. How do you pick up the book of the Gospels? Which uh, path do you take? What do you, what do you do when you get to the ambo? Do you know this? Sorry to put you on the spot here. but So you're the deacon. You're going to read the gospel. You get to the ambo. There's this procession of incense and candles and whatnot. What do you do? You incense the book, right? You do, but what do you do first? Bow? No. See, this is great stuff. You isn't there is the marking on the gospel? Is that that's nope. the end? The first thing is you greet the people. The Lord be with you and with your oh, spirit, with hands you're right. together. Yeah. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Saint Mark. And then you mark your head. Uh, you make the marking on your forehead, your lips, and on your breast, and then you turn and you grab the incense. I mean, these are all the questions that these guys ask now that they're the ones who're supposed to be doing. Yeah, so we're so like we're really like we're really involved in that process because we've been greeted. Yeah, they call you into their own action, oh, their own headship action. I, I never think, thought of it things. that way. Because uh, otherwise, it could just be like an observation. I mean, yes, obviously, active participation. We all get it, you know, but. Otherwise, it could just be this perceived per observation of a procession and, you know, things. But because we're greeted, we are enrolled into that process. Hmm. I've never thought of it that way, but I think that... Yeah, I just that blew your be, mind. You Boom. Good job. But uh, anyway, I mean, notice these things the next time you go to Mass, you know, how these 
actions and words and ministers and gestures, you know, unfold. And, uh, you know, in all of these things, the sacramental principle is that through the visible and audible and olfactory and things like that, this is how the otherwise invisible God becomes present in, in our midst. And so we want to do this in a beautiful way, a way that's according to the books, that's informed by the tradition. And that's, uh, that's how it happens. And is experiential and participatory, right? Because of my honeyitis, John Honeyitis. He, he <laughs> yeah, you really lot. need to clarify that. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh, John Honey, the author of uh, the Divine Liturgy, insights into its mystery. He compares it a lot to the, the the mystery religions of the ancient world. That you didn't just know; you experienced. You died to self. You would get on the ground. You'd be covered in. You know, think what a monk does when they make their solemn profession. They get covered with a pall, which is a, the cloth over their. Uh, coffin normally. Uh, so they actually have an experiential action of dying and rising again in the body, in the mind, as you ponder what it's like to be on the floor with no light. Um, and so we answer, we talk, we walk, we smell, we make gestures. It's not just know this stuff for a test. It's live this stuff experientially in the form of the right. Yeah. Right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, and if you did just sit there and just hope it worked by osmosis or something like that, don't be surprised when it doesn't happen. <laughs> That's not how it's supposed to work. All right. Thank you very much, guys. It's uh, time for a liturgy question, huh? Yes. Can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. More coffee. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. All right. This week, we have a question from Adam. And Adam says, as more and more parishes are being consolidated into one parish, how do we properly celebrate Easter rituals as one community? Hmm. So that might be one parish that has three worship sites, as they say. Well, yeah, we talked and we've talked before about how do you have to bless, do you bring three candles to the Easter vigil if this priest is in charge of three parishes, you know? Right. And then someone feels left out if it doesn't happen at their parish or you rotate every three, right. three years at different ones. Aren't you in a, you're not in a, a cluster, Chris, are you? I or, am. Oh, you are? I, so how, how do you all do it? Yeah, it's not one parish. It's still three. It's not one parish in three locations. It's still three distinct uh, parishes with one pastor with one pastor so yeah so he's thing. yeah as you might imagine he's not going to celebrate three uh easter vigils for example well yeah it would be impossible right in terms of the timing right you'd be it'd be sunrise by the time you unless he was in three different time zones yeah <laughs> <laughs> there you go i guess in antarctica you could do it <laughs> yeah well and in so elsewhere in my diocese and other dioceses that are rural i mean more and more uh there's a similar type of uh, situation. So, you know, how do you, how do you go about that? Um, we have, uh, there, there's a little um, kind of a mini germ before the, the triduum, uh, which begins with the mass of the Lord's supper. And there's this, there's three paragraphs there that give some general instruct, general rules. Um, it's number three though, that I think address begins to address uh, this question. Yes. I'm glad I could tell you about that. Chris. Yeah. What's it say? Oh, uh, it says the celebrations of the sacred Triduum are to be carried out in the cathedral and parochial churches and only in those churches where they can be performed with dignity. That is, with a good attendance of the faithful, an appropriate number of ministers, 
and the means to sing at least some of the parts. So if you're a small little parish and you don't have any singers, you shouldn't do it at all, it sounds like. So what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, well, it says it continues. uh, Consequently, it's desirable that small communities, associations, and special groups join together in these churches to carry out the sacred celebrations in a more suitable manner. So, right, it takes a lot of manpower, a lot of personnel to carry out uh, the Triduum liturgy. So you need a lot of people uh, who are well prepared. And usually, you know, I mean, my parish is, I think, 80 families. Another of the parishes is 60, one's 90. Uh, they just don't have the the people to make it happen. So we come together to do a, a better job uh, at the whole Triduum. So yeah, that's that's how we do it. And we furthermore, we, we don't... Um, we in in lacrosse at least we don't envision say holy thursday at one parish and good friday at a second parish and the easter vigil at a third parish because all the it seems that the 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 triduum is sort of this in a certain way it's like one liturgy stretched out over 3 days right cuz think of the mass of the lord's supper ends uh in adoration and the altar is stripped presuming that the next day good friday will take place and Good Friday begins with the altar stripped and the the sacrament uh, in most cases removed and so on. So they sort of envision being in a single place. So at least what we're going to do is uh, the three parishes will come together and we rotate each year. This year it happens to be at my parish. Uh, my pastor has already asked me to contact the musicians uh, from the other parishes to uh, uh, get them to, to assist. And we even in, uh, in La Crosse, we don't like so sometimes what'll happen is father will say well i have two places i can only do it once so i'm going to get a help out priest to come in to do the other place uh this is might be possible but you think about how uh, a priest who's new to that parish is going to step in for the first time possibly in the biggest liturgies of the year and know how things roll and know who people are so we don't even encourage that uh, in the diocese so so don't bring in a ringer Right. Yeah. Is that what a ringer is? Yeah. Ringer just <laughs> yeah. steps in. Like usually oh, in a okay. choir, a ringer is a paid okay. singer who jumps oh, into okay. your tender section or whatever. You know, I hadn't even thought that you shouldn't do it in three places during the true one because it's one, did I, yeah. it's one liturgy. Yeah. Chris is so smart. Hmm. And, 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 I, and I like, and I talk, I, I like what you're talking about the, the pastor bring, being the principal celebrant as well. There's got to be something there too. I mean, he's the one that they see, right? You know? So, all right, Adam, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, get out of my dreams and into my Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael, don't be so coy, and Nathan, first round draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.